Father, we're thankful <clears throat> for the reading of your word this morning. We're thankful for this story of Jonathan and of Saul. I pray that you'd help us to learn what we should and apply it to our hearts and our lives. And we'll thank you for it. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In the early 1960s, the 24-hour French Le Mans was the ultimate endurance automobile race. It was dominated by the Italian car manufacturer Ferrari. And despite its size, American car manufacturer Ford was not a racing powerhouse. Ford was on a quest to prove otherwise for the sake of its future and for the sake and the future of its, brand, of its brand. In the years following that decision, Ford spent $10 million on the GT40 racing program. Ken Miles was an English race car driver who, as a teenager, became an apprentice at an engine manufacturer. After serving in World War II, he began racing. He loved cars and racing and had an uncanny knack to fill the car and the track. He racked up an impressive winning streak that caught the attention of Carol Shelby, who headed up Ford's racing program. Shelby saw something in Miles that he knew he needed to beat the Italians. So he recruited Miles not only to race the car, but to help in engineering and designing it. He was a driver who understood just how far you could push a car on the racetrack and how to increase its performance. He lived, breathed, felt the car racing, often tinkering late into the night to improve the GT40 car. In 1966, Miles won the 24 hours of Daytona, the 12 hours of Sebring, setting the stage for a triple crown, winning the 1966 Le Mans. Ford entered eight cars. America never does anything small, right? <laughs> entered eight cars in that, that year in the Le Mans. Miles drove in Ford one, and toward the end of that race was four laps ahead of second place car, Ford number two, driven by McLaren, and several more laps ahead of third place car, Ford number three. All Ferrari cars had not lasted to the end of the race. It looked like Miles was on his way to winning the triple crown in endurance racing, realizing there was an unusual opportunity here to put an exclamation point on Ford dominance Ford's PR guru wanted to pull off a PR stunt. And so he had Shelby order Miles to slow down and let the other GT40s catch up with him. And so he did. Reluctantly, Miles slowed down, and all three Ford cars finished the race in a dead heat. Nothing like this had ever happened in car racing. What were they going to do? They could not award three first places. And so on the spot, Le Mans timekeepers determined that four number two had started the race 20 feet farther back than Ford number one. And even though Miles 
was faster until the very end. Ford number two and the McLaren team was awarded first place shortly after the end of the race. In the movie Ford versus Ferrari, the conversation between Shelby and Miles after the announcement of McLaren's victory showed the spirit of Miles and provides a powerful illustration for the thrust of my sermon this morning. Shelby admitted to Miles, I never should have asked you to slow down. Well, Miles said, you promised me the drive, not the win. Shelby marveled, I was heck of a drive. She's a heck of a machine, Miles replied. Shelby agreed, oh, she's fast, all right. Miles began to walk away from the crowd. Seven liters is sweet, but she could be faster. She needs a lighter chassis. I think bonded aluminum. It's ground up rebuilt, and if it works, we could cut a couple hundred pounds off of that car. Shelby shook his head in disbelief. Well then, what are we doing here? Miles agreed. Let me take a shower, get a cup of tea. Let's beat him next year. Miles was all about car and the race to the point of losing self-interest. He loved to win, but his real love was the car and the race. In our passage, we're dealing with a more significant topic than a car and a race. It's about God and about his workings. Jonathan was all about Jonathan was all about God and his workings to the point of losing self-interest. He powerfully illustrates that passion for God and his will and what it looks like. This may, this, this may be shown more pointedly in our passage than any other place in the scriptures, except maybe for the gospel. Jonathan had a transcendent passion for God and his working that surpassed all his self-interest. Our passage shows how he handled himself under the shadow of giants in verses 1 through 5. And it's contrasted by the example of Saul in verses 6 through 16. The message this morning can be stated in one sentence. An earnest follower of God will have a transcendent passion for God and his workings that surpasses all self-interest. Jonathan demonstrated a transcendent power for God, a transcendent power for God and his workings. Saul demonstrated a transcendent passion for his self-interest. Jonathan was an earnest follower of God, and Saul was not. In the first five verses of our passage, Jonathan displays three marks, I think, of those that have a transcendent passion for God and his workings. A love for those that trust in God, a commitment to that love, and a loose hold on perceived rights. Verses 2 and 5 give us some commentary along the way, the, outside the immediate scene. And I will draw from verses 6 through 16 under each of these points to provide a contrast with Saul. So first of all, the first mark, a love for those 
that trust in God. Maybe said another way, a love for those that love God. Jonathan loved those that loved God. In 1 Samuel 17, the passage just before what we read here, one of the greatest stories of all times is told. David, the shepherd boy, defeated the giant warrior of the Philistines, Goliath, with a sling and a rock from the brook. It's a tremendous story. And our passage follows right after that event. While David, with the head of Goliath in his hand, talks to King Saul. And Jonathan, Jonathan, Saul's son, waits quietly. Perhaps you can feel uh, sort of the natural tension that might be on Jonathan's mind while he waits in the shadows to greet David. Perhaps you felt the same tension at times in your life. What a great day for God and for Israel, but what about me? You've got to know that this was a real temptation and that what happened that day on the battlefield had a long-term consequence to Jonathan and his life. One possible way of thinking is that Jonathan really had been one-upped by the shepherd boy, right? Jonathan was no slouch. He was courageous in battle and with the power of God had single-handedly taken on a garrison of the Philistines in chapter 14. Jonathan had heard the ranting of Goliath and had done nothing day after day. Jonathan could very well be kicking himself in the pants for such a weak faith, thinking repeatedly, what should I have done better? Maybe I should have stepped up to the place. plate. Have you ever been there? I have. I'm sure you have. He could have been nursing a bruise of spirit that spread like a bruise on a piece of fruit because someone else had been used, been, been used by God in this situation. These are real and true temptations that we all struggle with. That's why Jonathan is such a powerful example for us in this area. He had much more to lose in this love for David than we often have to lose in the love that we apply ourselves to. And so it says in verse 1, as soon as he had finished speaking with Saul, that is David had finished speaking with Saul, he, he turned to Jonathan's embrace. These temptations of Jonathan were quenched because he had a transcendent passion for God that controlled his thinking. Matthew Henry, and I'll have to apologize, I have a few quotes from Matthew Henry today. For whatever reason, him and I were thinking along the same lines here a lot. I did read some other commentaries, by the way. He said this, those that are governed in their love by principles of wisdom and grace will not suffer their affections to be alienated by any secular regards or considerations. The greater thoughts will be swallowed up and overrule the less. Jonathan's love was governed by wisdom and grace, and the affections of self were swallowed up by the greater thought of the wisdom and grace that finds their source in the passion for God. And so while he 
saw what happened that day on the field and listened to David express himself with prudence and modesty and piety despite the disadvantages of education and appearance, our passage says that in the second part of verse 1, Jonathan's soul was knit to the soul of David. Maybe a more direct meaning is to say that they were chained together. The same fibers that ran through Jonathan's heart ran through David's heart. And these fibers pulled them together like a couple of super neodym magnets. David was not competition. He was an ally of the best sorts. They were kindred spirits because their common love for God was a magnetic field that pulled them together. To help us understand kindred spirits, we must turn to the expert on kindred spirits, and that is Anne of Green Gables, of course. In Anne's conversation with Captain Jim, he says, uh, You're old and I'm young, but your, our souls are about the same age, I reckon. We both belong to the race that knows Joseph. The race that knows Joseph, exclaimed Anne. Yes, Cornelius divides all people into, in the world into two kinds, the race that knows Joseph and the race that don't. If a person sort of sees eye to eye with you and has pretty much the same ideas about things, the same taste in jokes, why then he belongs to the race that knows Joseph. Oh, exclaimed Anne, I understand. That's what I call a kindred spirit. I don't know if Cornelius's Joseph is a reference to the biblical Joseph, but if it is, it could very well be substituted with Jonathan. But ultimately, for Christians, we belong to the race that knows Joseph. Or knows Jesus, I'm sorry. We belong to the race that knows Jesus. We gather this morning as a kindred spirit who knows about Jesus. We see eye to eye, have pretty much the same ideas about things, a similar, a similar taste in jokes because we know Jesus. When you feel competition and fear and anger, disunity, jealousy creeping into your thinking about your brother or your sister or leader in the church, back it back down a few notches and remember the important things. Are you being driven by a passion for God? Driven by a passion for the gospel? Or is there some other passion at work? Be honest with yourself. So not only does it say that Jonathan's soul was knit to David's soul, it also said that Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And it's sad that we have to stop here and give some explanation because there would be those that would thrust their agenda upon this passage. People like Tom Horner in Jonathan loved David, homosexuality in the Bible, asserts that the relationship between Jonathan and David was homosexual. The Hebrew word ahib is translated here love in this passage, and it's never used anywhere in the Bible to express homosexual desire or sexual activity at all. The Hebrew word employed for that is yeda, which is often translated no in a sexual and romantic way. The word love in this passage 
has, the, has some political and diplomatic overtones. The same word is used in 1 Kings 5.1 of the king of Tyre, who the scriptures said always loved David and was grateful to offer Solomon help to build the temple. There's no indication in these verses or anywhere else in the Bible that David and Jonathan had a homosexual romantic relationship or any desires that way. But John, both Jonathan and David married two women and knew them. So I think we can be assured that the love that's spoken about in this passage is a self-sacrificing type of love for a friend that wants to help and give benefit. Jonathan loved David as his own soul. This is the way of expressing love that is often held up in the Bible as genuine love. Jesus offered often and often commanded his followers, love your neighbor as yourself. It's a pretty high standard because we have a natural propensity towards ourselves, for our own soul, for our own well-being, our comfort, our needs. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, 29, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. It is a love that we need to develop, I think, for everyone, but especially for those that are of the household of faith, those that are in our church. Such a spirit of love among the brethren really undercuts jealousy and envy and wars and fightings. You cannot be upset or in a tizzy with someone if you love them like you love yourself. James asked the question, what causes quarrels and fightings among you? Is it not this? Your passions are at war within you? The answer is yes. While Jonathan fell in line with David, Saul fell into anger, jealousy. Initially, it seemed otherwise. In verse 5, in verse 2, might indicate that. It says in verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That is, David became fully employed in the king's business. No more hopping back and forth between shepherding and the king's court, that seems to be the case with David as he played his harp to relieve David of the harmful spirit that came upon him in chapter 16. Saul wanted this man in his service for his kingly enterprise. He was very valuable that way. It's a subtle, different way of looking at things that has some further dangerous ramifications. The ramifications all got stirred up because they listened to some country music on their way home from the battle. That country music is recorded for us in verse 6. And as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and with songs of joy, with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. The runners had delivered the good news to the towns. There had been a great victory. Goliath was dead. And by the hand of a shepherd boy by the name of David, tens of thousands of Philistine soldiers were dead, strewn along the way to Gath in the wake of David's victory. The old poets 
put it to rhyme, the musicians sang as the army thundered home in victory. Saul and his military leaders rode through the crowds of the cities to the palace, and all that Saul could hear was, Saul has ten thousands, David his ten thousands. We turn to, Ma to um, Matthew Henry again, and he says, Proud men cannot endure to hear any praise but themselves and think all their honor lost that goes by themselves. David was competition for Saul, but to Jonathan, David was a comrade. These completely different views hinge on their different passions. These completely different views hinge on their completely different passions. So the first mark from our passage of a transcendent passion for God and his workings is a genuine love for those that trust in God. The second is a willingness to commit to that love. Jonathan committed to this love with a covenant. It says in verse 3, And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. In that moment, I, I'm not sure what this covenant might have looked like. Maybe a few short words where he swore his loyalty and friendship. Perhaps this covenant is revealed for us in chapter 20, verse 42, where Jonathan and David part ways and David becomes a fugitive from Saul. In that verse, Jonathan says to David, Go in peace because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying, and maybe this was the covenant, the Lord shall be between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. There was peace between David and Jonathan because they swore to put Yahweh between the two of them. The love of Yahweh was the connecting peace between them in their relationship. It drew them together. They committed to live faithfully in their relationship and in kindness to one another before and because of God, who was their judge and would look upon their relationship, and to live in the same way towards their offspring and to teach their offspring to do the same. Jonathan had not just come up with this covenant idea all on his own. No, Jonathan had learned the value of covenant from the covenant-making God that he served. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the, faith, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. God graciously commits his love and judgment in the written and in verbal covenants throughout the Bible. We find it every place. It's a gracious act that our God does on our behalf. One covenant building upon another covenant as he progressively and increasingly teaches mankind through the ages of his love and of his judgment and of his faithfulness. There are major covenants that God makes through and to and with Adam, Noah, 
Abraham, Moses, David, and they're reaffirmed through the judges and the psalmists and the prophets. Much could be said about how we look at these covenants as we stand on this side, and probably there's some faithful disagreement amongst us on how we look at that. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that our God is distinguished as a covenant-giving God. It's shown through the pages of scriptures, and today, in just a little while here, we'll be remembering the new covenant. Jesus said as he lifted up the cup at his last supper, this is the cup, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new covenant is the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to earth, died on the cross, rose from the dead, paid sin's price, so that all who trust in his substitutionary sacrifice and repent of their sin are afforded a place at the table with God. Because our sins have been forgiven and because we have been given the righteousness of God. This is the new covenant under which we have our hope this morning and for the reason that we gather. So here is the real point under point number two. That is, true love desires to be consistent. It desires to be committed. Jonathan's godly love for God's man, David, begged for a commitment, for a covenant. It couldn't help itself but to give a covenant in that situation. Just last week, I observed Whitney Miller and Daniel Cowden covenant to each other in holy matrimony. True marital love begins with a covenant. It desires to vow its faithfulness for all to hear and for all to see, to be accountable and commit to each other before enjoying the pleasures of marriage benefits. This is true love. Covenanting, covenanting is an important concept, I think, and one that our world is quickly running away from. I think it's important for our teens and college kids and singles and dating couples. True love does not want to live together first. True love does not want to try out sex first. True love does not want freedom and no commitments. Maybe it's infatuation. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's attached, you know, emotional attachment. But it certainly is not true love. True love desires to be consistent and committed. So the idea of coveting in our text may be most applies to us today in the area of church membership and church covenant. If we love people, God's people, if we love people that trust God, that love God, like Jonathan, then it's only natural that we would express that by covenanting with them in church membership. Our church covenant is really just a condensed uh, version of what the Bible calls believers to do as they relate to one another in the household of faith, which is the local church. It would only make good sense if you truly love God's people that you would want to covenant with them, to live out that love, and to be committed to it, to the body of believers and commit to the membership of the church. Maybe you've never thought of church membership and church covenant in this way. You're a believer, 
but just do not see the value in church membership. Hopefully the covenant I think that David has made here graciously that he put upon David has spurred you to think about that a little bit and to commit yourself to a local church. I'd encourage you to talk to somebody today before you leave about that if that is the case. Maybe reading the church covenant every time a member joins the church is getting just a little monotonous. <laughs> we've had a lot of members lately, and we've read it a lot of times. Maybe the words come out of your mouth, but they never hit on your heart. Maybe we need to rekindle our love for God's people like Jonathan had and reinvigorate our commitment to live out our church covenant amongst one another. And, my, and lastly, and along the same lines, I think, as the last point I just made, I would hope that a closer look at Jonathan's committing love would encourage you to covenant with other fellow brothers and sisters in the church to help them out in a particular situation, or maybe just more open-ended way, offer your help and assistance and letting them know that you're there. One of my children purposely told my wife and I that no matter what happened, I don't know if they were seeing things or not, what happens as we grow older and need help, there will always be a place in their home for us. This they didn't have to say. We knew of their love. But it was encouraging to hear, tremendously encouraging to hear. And it was a covenant of sorts. So who is there in your life that needs assurance of your committed love and hope? I challenge you to reach out to them this week. Give them a call. Meet with them. Let them know of your committed and covenant love. Give them an encouragement. A mark of a transcendent passion for God and his works is a willingness to covenant with God's people. While, Jevet, while Jonathan was coveting with David, Paul was conspiring. In verse 9, it said, Saul eyed David from that day on. In verse 10, the next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, as he did day by day. And Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. And David evaded him twice. It was an assassination attempt. Because of the offenses he felt in his jealousy, Saul took opportunity to do harm to David. Eventually, this grew out to be an all-out effort to kill him. Jealousy and envy are terrifying masters. If you leave jealousy and envy to fester in your life, it will give way to anger that will lead to devastating results. An example of this happened in a baseball game between, between the Baltimore Orioles and Boston on May 16, 1894. During the game, Orioles' John McGraw got in a fight with Boston third baseman about a tag that had happened at third base. Both men were feisty hotheads. Soon both of them were battling, and the warfare erupted on the field and then spread to the stands. This only ended when the stands were set on fire and the entire ballpark burnt to the ground, as well as 170 other buildings in the vicinity. 
Well, maybe an extreme example, right? But it shows how disagreement and anger can be stirred up and end up in great destruction. We should take care not to conceal offenses of hurts, feelings. They often find their source in our pride. Not always, but oftentimes finds their source in our pride and jealousy and envy of others. Let go of the bitter resentment. Confess it before God. Be freed of the tension and the vexing of heart that it causes. These things can begin in secret and oftentimes do, but they will most assuredly come out on the surface unless they're confessed. We learn from Saul the danger of a transcendent passion for self-interest and how it undermines and destroys the soul. We learn from the example of Jonathan that loving those that trust in God and committing to that love and covenant are two marks of an earnest follower of God. In verse 4, we see a stunning act of self-abasement that showed Jonathan had a loose hold on his perceived rights. And this is the third mark of an element, the third mark of an earnest follower of Jesus and of God from our passage this morning, and it's probably the most profound. In verse 4, it says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan removed his princely robe, full set of armor, wars of weapon, and gave them to David, clothed only in his undergarment. Earlier that day, the armor of Saul had been offered to David, but it didn't fit right, and it hadn't been tested. Jonathan's armor, however, fit just right. Although Jonathan did not witness the anointing of David as king at the hand of Samuel earlier in our passage, he was sensitive to God, and I believe he was able to put the pieces together by observing David. David was the next king. There was more going on here than just the shepherd being equipped for future battle. Jonathan was the prince, the rightful heir to the father's throne. He was in line to be the next king of Israel. And it's well known that the robes and the armor of a prince symbolize the right to the throne. Jonathan was giving up his right to the throne in this gesture. Del Davis says this, this, act, this was an act of Jonathan's conceding his right to be king. In the ancient Near East, no one would do such a thing. You did not transfer your crown right to a up, new upcomer. You eliminated him. And along with this, um, S.G. DeGraff says it this way, This deed on Jonathan's part was an act of faith. Only faith makes us willing to be lesser. Faith causes us to surrender the right that we pretend to have over against the Christ who is truly Israel's king. In all this, I think we hear the words of John the Baptist, do we not? He must increase and I must decrease. Saul held tight to his kingly robes in his mind, he was the rightful king. He lived in fear of losing those rights, and he became a very sorry-looking, sorry-working man. In verse 12, it says, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, 
but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of thousands. And he went out and came in before the people. In verse 14, And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And the Lord saw that he was, and, and when Saul saw that he was great, he had great success. He stood in fear of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Along the way, Saul got smaller and smaller, and David got stronger and stronger. So what supposed rights are you holding on to that's spoiling your spirit? These days, we have a growing of so-called rights, do we not? The right to be respected, the right to be heard, the right to be myself, the right to be comforted, the right to be taken care of, the right to have a job, the right to have a job I like. The list goes on and on, does it not? And it's growing by the day. Learn to let go of those supposed rights that oftentimes we feel entitled to. It's not a call to be a doormat at all times, but it is a call to be a doormat at times. May wisdom direct you as you sort of examine your soul and consider uh, your spirit and consider what's holding, what you're holding tight to as you consider what you should do in whatever situation God may have put you. And so an earnest follower of God will have a transcendent passion for God and his workings that overshadows all self-interest and is marked by a love for God's people and leaders, a willingness to covenant in that love, and a willingness to hold tight, lightly to our perceived rights. Miles was back on the track shortly after the 1966 Le Mans, tinkering and test driving Ford's new J version. When a, machine, when a mechanical failure caused the car to careen out of control, going 150 miles an hour, it flipped several times, throwing him from the car and killing him. Miles died for his passion, never having experienced the opportunity to stand on the podium at the Le Mans, though he deserved it. It was a tragedy of death because at that point, it was all over for Miles and his passion. His self-interest had been completely forfeited to the Ford GT40 program. Self-interest has an ironic spin, I think, for Christians in view of eternal life, forfeiting the lesser self-interest of the things of this world really pays back big with eternal, vibrant, meaningful, blessed life in this age and in the age to come. My, in one sense, my thesis could be turned around to say this. An earnest follower of God will have a transcendent passion for genuine self-interest by finding a passion for God and his workings. The example of Jonathan points us to the ultimate embodiment of the, of the lesson, embodiment of the lesson that we have today, and that is Jesus. The creator becomes servant, become savior. Matthew Henry said it, our Lord Jesus showed his love to us when he stripped himself to clothe us, emptied himself to enrich us. Nay, he did more than Jonathan. He clothed himself with our rags. 
And so as we conclude here, I want you to listen to the words as I read them and consider the love, the commitment, the humbleness that our Savior had towards God and towards the plan of God in these verses. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we pray. Father, we're so thankful to consider what you've done for us. Certainly we see an example in Jonathan here of loving God and loving God's plan. And yet we see the ultimate in your life when you came to this earth, forfeiting your glories, your robes, so that you might come to earth and live a faithful life and die upon a cross that we might have everlasting life. What a great Lord and shepherd that we follow. May we never lose awe of who you are. In Christ's name I pray, amen.